Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. All right, week seven, Kings and Kingdoms. We're making our way through 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Today's the day that we're venturing into the, the second book. It was originally just one book called Kings, 47 chapters long, a little bit too long for me, a little intimidating. So somebody along the way broke it up and said, hey, try, why don't you try it this way? So we're making our way into the second of the two books. And the theme so far has been that evil human kings are ruling over God's people. And yet, despite the the hard-to-believe evil that is going on in Israel, God continues to extend grace. He keeps giving them chances. And And God, true to form and true to his character, continues to reach out and say, if you turn back to me, If you will turn and do it my way, I will forgive, I will heal you, I will bless you, but you got to do it my way. And and one of the ways that he extends this grace is he sends prophets, people that speak for God. They they prophesy things that are going to happen in the future, and they also tell the people the truth. They tell them how it is. And and the main theme of, of the Old Testament prophets is, would you just turn back to God? It's better his way. And he will be quick to forgive. A couple weeks ago, we talked about one of these all-time great prophets. His name was Elijah. And if you were here, you remember I, I walked you through all these amazing stories of Elijah's life. And wouldn't you know it, another guy comes along. Elijah's mentee, his understudy, Elisha. And he comes along, and, and wouldn't you believe it? He says, you know what? Whatever Elijah had, I'll have it. But you know what? Why don't you double it? I would like a double portion of whatever Elijah is having. Elijah's passing the baton to his, this younger man, Elisha. It's his turn now. And he says to Elisha, he says, tell me one last thing. What can I do for you? And Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And he does. And it's, in fact, it's recorded that Elisha performs more recorded miracles in the Bible than anybody else except Jesus. This man's life is just unbelievable. I'm going to try to give you a, a flyover. When I, when I had to teach on Elijah a couple weeks ago, it felt overwhelming to try to cram this man's life into one sermon. And Elisha, given the double portion of his spirit, it felt twice as hard this week. There's twice as many stories about Elisha. And I, I actually got a note from somebody, I think it was this week, and they said, hey, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but hey, you left out my favorite part. of." Uh, and I thought, man, I'm leaving out 12 of my favorite parts every week. Like there's just too much. So you can call me a bad planner if you want to. Maybe we should have chopped it up into smaller pieces. But what I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to take these themes and these stories and and boil it down to a 30-minute message that, that can apply to our lives. And I, uh, I guess I just need a little bit of grace in the process, perhaps. This week specifically, I had written a bunch of stuff down, and I, I looked at it, and I thought, man, this is, this is way too much to try to cram into one message. And I physically had to sit back in my chair 
and close my eyes and say, Lord, I have a lot to say, but I only want to say what you want me to say. So can you lead me to that? And I, I, I believe that he's done that, and I hope to share that with you today. It's a little bit of a flyover. Elisha, listen, listen to some of these things that happened in his life. This is all in 2 Kings chapters 3 through 8. Elisha, right after Elijah left, Elijah left his coat with Elisha. And Elisha took Elijah's coat and he slapped the waters of the Jordan River and they split and Elisha crossed over. There was a city near where Elisha lived and they had a contaminated water source. All of the people that loved living in this city were going to have to move. Everything else about the city was fine, but they had a contaminated water source. It was making everybody sick. And Elisha took a bowl of water and he put some salt in the random little bowl of water. And he says, why don't you try drinking from the well now? And they drank and the water had been purified and the city was saved and healed. Three, three different kings, right after that, three different kings. In a, in a rare uh, moment of love between the north and the south, remember there's kind of a civil war going on right now. The north and the south, they get together, they bring in another king, the king of Edom, and they said, hey, we have a common enemy the Moabites are right over there, and it feels like they're going to attack all of us and wipe all of us out. So why don't we band our armies together, and we'll go attack them together. So that's what they do. They get together, and they go attack them. They, they, maybe they underestimate how long it's going to take, and they end up wandering around in the desert, dehydrated. The, the army's dehydrated. The animals are dehydrated, and they're going to die because it's too far to come back without water. And they bring Elisha in. They say, Elisha, can you help us? We know you're kind of a miracle man. And Elisha says, get your shovels out. It's time to start digging some ditches. Before night time tonight, dig some trenches. And they dig them. Their dehydrated bodies dig these trenches. And then they go to bed and they wake up. And all of these trenches begin to fill with water. One day, Elisha met a poor woman. A poor woman who had no husband, whose husband had died. And she had amounted an incredible debt in order to pay off this debt, she was going to have to sell two of her sons into slavery. And she said, Elisha, can you help me? And, and he said, well, do you have anything to try to pay the debt with? She said, I only have one little jar of oil. He says, well, that gives me an idea. Why don't, why don't you go around to your neighbor's houses, knock on the door, just see if anybody has any empty jars, empty pots. Why don't we bring them all here and then we'll tell you what to do next. So she goes and she knocks on all these doors and she gathers all these jars and she has them in her house. And then Elijah said, Elisha says, uh, they're all full of olive oil now. So once you sell these, you can pay off your debts and your sons can stay with you. And it happened. The jars were filled with oil. And then that was the poor woman. Then he goes and he meets a rich woman. He meets a rich woman. This woman, she had apparently so many guest rooms in her house that she set one aside for just when Elisha was in town. Her and her husband said, this, is, this could be Elisha's room. Let's decorate it for Elisha. And he would come there. But the one thing that they wanted the most was they wanted a son. They wanted a family. They couldn't get pregnant. And Elisha said, hey, one year from today, you're going to have a boy. And, and you can read it. She says, no, no, don't mess with me. Don't get my hopes up. My hopes have been up before. Elisha says, you watch. And sure enough, a year later, they have a son. But wouldn't you believe it? The son grows up and the son gets sick and the son dies. And they're a little confused. We thought this was a gift from the Lord. 
And Elisha, this is, this is in the Bible, Elisha goes and, and there's a, a boy that is dead lying on a couch and Elisha, God through Elisha, heals this boy and life is breathed back into his body and he lives and he grows up. Elisha met a commanding officer from a foreign country. His name was Naaman and Naaman had leprosy a skin disease that at the time was incurable. And Elijah says, if you want to be healed, all you got to do is walk down into the Jordan River, just wash yourself seven times. At first, Naaman's like, seven times? Why don't I just go take a bath in my own river? Elisha says, why don't you just trust me if you go down there seven times? And he does it. It says that his, his skin was healed. It was like that of a baby boy. He was healed in a moment. And then, here's one, Elisha he gets this group of prophets together. There's a lot of people that want to be around Elisha, as you can probably imagine. And they said, man, it feels like we almost need a place to meet, gather, a place that we can have some shade, gather this heat. So they go down by the Jordan River and they start cutting down these different trees. And, and one of them apparently had borrowed an axe. And he reaches back his axe to cut down one of the trees to build their shelter. And the axe head... Uh, gets thrown off of the edge of the handle and falls into the water. And the man says, that was a borrowed axe. And Elisha says, oh, we don't want to have to come up with money to buy another axe head. At this point, he's just having fun. And he makes the axe head float on top of the water and they grab it and they go about building their shelter. So just story after story. You, know, you ever heard of this one? If you're the type that read ahead and you are familiar with Elisha. There's one story in particular I remember as a kid being scared of. And it's a story I'm like, man, I wanted to skip this one, but I, I try to make it a habit to not skip parts of the Bible that make me uncomfortable. You know the story about the bears with our man Elisha? Here's a quick three-minute detour. This really doesn't support most of what I'm saying today, but I think it's important. In first, or excuse me, Second Kings chapter 2, there's a story about some bears that you're going to, you never read it before, you're going to think I'm making it up. Verse 23, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him, get out of here, Baldy. They said, get out of here, Baldy. And he turned around and looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Now you see why I wanted to skip it. Why in the world would that story be recorded by the author of this book? Some kids make fun of Elijah's lack of hair and two bears come out of the woods and maul them. And I, I just, that doesn't fit with my idea of who God is. And, and maybe the, the feeling that I have is just doesn't seem fair. Feels like the punishment outweighs the crime big time in this one. It doesn't seem fair to me. Is a feeling that I have. And I, I, I was recently talking with my daughter Cooper. She's in first grade. And she said to me, you want to have a, you want to be kind of 
it, it's tough sometimes having theological conversations with your kids because they'll just, they'll just go right for it. They'll tell you the truth. They don't let you theologically dance around them as much as adults do. And she said, hey, Dad, I got a question for you. I said, yeah, what's up, Coops? She said, well, okay, so I believe in Jesus, and so I'm going to heaven, but I have a friend at school who doesn't, her family doesn't love God. Does that mean that she's not going to heaven? I said, that is what the Bible says, Cooper. And she says, well, Dad, that isn't fair. And I made a mistake. I'm going to have to go back and, 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 and help her on this one. But I made a mistake. I said, no, Cooper. I said, Cooper, it is fair. It is fair. The Bible's clear that if you put your faith in Jesus, then, then God will prepare a place for you in heaven. You'll get to spend forever with God in heaven. But if you reject Jesus, if you say, no, I don't believe it, well, then God's going to put you in a place where he can't help you because you have rejected. And so, Cooper, it is fair. Try to explain it to her. And, and I've been thinking about this all week. I thought, you know what? I, I think I was wrong. It, what she was saying, what she was asking isn't fair. But the only thing that isn't fair about it is that Cooper is going to heaven. This is important for us to get this right. The only thing that isn't fair is that any of us are going to heaven. Because the, the wages of sin is death. No one's eternal destination is based on fairness. And for that, I am thankful because I'm a sinner. We're not getting anywhere based on merit, based on family origin, based on how many good things we've done. The only, play, the only way we're getting anywhere is by grace through faith, and that's it. This whole thing is not based on fairness. And for that, I'm thankful. So how we ought to be thinking is that every day I'm alive, every breath that I take, every day that I am not mauled by bears is a blessing. Because that is actually what I deserve. Physical and spiritual death is what I deserve. The wages of sin is death. Every time we sin, every time we speak against God, we speak against God's people, we don't take him seriously, we don't revere him as almighty. What is fair is that we would be punished for this. So the moral of the bear story, the moral of the bear story is don't mess with him. Don't mess with him. Don't take him lightly. Don't take his grace for granted because he's not only the big nice man upstairs, but he's a holy God and he won't be mocked. And death is what is fair. And I'm praising God when I think about it that I don't get what is fair, but instead I get salvation. All these stories are recorded in 2 Kings 3 through 8. And maybe if I could just tie a bow on all of them, this is what God called Elisha into. It doesn't cover it all. It was a flyover. But this is the life that God called Elisha into. And so let me just kind of turn it on us a couple thousand years later. What has God called you into? In other words, what would you say is the purpose of your life? What has God called you into? It's definitely going to be different than Elisha's. 
it's probably going to be different than the person sitting next to you. And it's a topic, frankly, that I think can be confusing. Because when I ask that question, what has God called you into? I know there's some people in the room who, you know, immediately how to answer that question. God has helped you see that. But for a lot of other people, you're not really sure. And for some other people, you're kind of waiting and you want to know. And some other people go, what does that question even mean? I'm not even sure how to answer that question. What has God called me into? Let me try to help us understand. All Christians, everyone who's ever put their faith in Jesus, we're called in some sense to some of the same things. Like we're all called to serve the poor. We're called to be kind to others, to seek justice for the oppressed, to forgive, to give, to pray, to be in a community with other believers, to be humble, to share our faith. The list goes on and on. These are, these are things that we are all called to. These aren't one verse in the Bible that I'm pulling out. This is a theme of the New Testament. This is what a Christian looks like. This is what we're called to. But then we see in the Bible that other times God calls specific people to specific things. And when I say that, the first thing that usually comes to people's mind is people that are called to be missionaries, and that happens. People that are called to be in ministry, people that are called to start a nonprofit, those feel like very spiritual callings. But equally as important in the eyes of God are some other different callings that you might not be thinking of, such as the, the calling to start a business, the calling to be a stay-at-home mom, the calling to homeschool your kids, the calling to be a, a father who lays down some of their career ambitions for the benefit of his wife and his children, the calling to start a Bible study where you work, the calling to be a community group leader in your local church, the calling, the calling to, to adopt a child, to be a My Village Ministries host family, to make a lot of money and fund God's work all over the world. Those are just some ideas of some specific callings that God's not calling all of us into, but some of us he is. And so the question is, what are you called into? Paul tried to help these Christians understand this when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. I think this might help you. This is what he said to the Christians. He says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. So what are the good things that God has planned for you long ago? What is God calling you into? It's different than the person that's next to you. So there's a lot about Elijah's life, if I'm being honest. I can't relate. <laughs> I can't make axe heads float. Can't make jars come full of oil, at least as far as I know. Haven't tried. Hasn't happened yet. So there's a lot about his life I can't relate to, but, but the story of when Elisha is called into this is something I can relate to and is something that we can imitate. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn them on. You could open them. I'll throw it on the screen just in case you don't have it with you. 1 Kings chapter 19, just three verses. This is where we meet Elisha. This is the beginning. I want you to notice the steps that he takes. And maybe they're the steps we could take too. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. You ready? So Elisha, excuse me, Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. 
Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Sounds good. Go back. Elijah replied, what have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people. And they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. Okay, so a couple questions out of the gate. Where did Elijah come from? Elijah had just had an unbelievable conversation with God. And in that conversation, God had told Elijah that Elisha was next. It was next man up. Elijah was going to be taken out of this role as lead prophet for the nation, and Elisha was next. And so that's where Elijah is coming from. What is Elisha doing when Elijah gets there? He's plowing with oxen. He's not alone. There's 24 cows that are paired up, 12 yoke of oxen, and apparently Elisha is driving just the 12th pair. So there's a lot of farmers, but Elisha is on his parents' farm plowing with oxen. He's a farmer. Think about this. What would it have been like to drive oxen day after day after day? No AirPods, no podcasts. Think of what he's got to clean off his shoes when he's done. He's just staring at oxen butts all day, right in front of him. Just day after day, just the grind, the monotony over and over. Is anything going to happen in my life that is exciting at all? Instead, he's just farming at his parents' house, just doing the same old, same old. And I imagined, as I thought about this, that some of us in the room might feel like this. It's February in Ohio. And you might not be driving oxen, but does life feel like it's just, man, day in, day out, same thing, quota after quota, bill after bill, diaper after diaper. You're just grinding just going through the motions, just like, when is this going to end? It's in that state. It's in that state that Elijah comes and he throws his coat onto Elisha. This coat would have been made out of animal skin, most likely a goat. And what Elijah's doing is he throws his coat on Elisha. He's saying, what has covered me is going to cover you. What I have been underneath, you will be underneath. What God has done through me, God will do through you, through you. And Elijah comes and throws what I call his goat coat onto Elisha. And then look what Elisha does. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. He didn't ask questions. He didn't gather more intel, make sure it was safe. He just left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Without knowing where they were going, without knowing the details, without gathering answers, he obeys immediately. And this is something that each of us need to understand about the way that God works with people. God is often, all through the Bible, also here with Elisha, he is strategically vague with his instructions. Because he... What, he knows this about Elisha, and he knows it about us, that if he gave us all the details, we might not go. It might be too much to bear. A lot of times, God will just give the most vague instructions so that we will just take the first step. And I think about it this way. If, if God, when, when God was calling me and my wife Morgan to come and start this church, if he had laid out everything that would happen, 
I don't know if I would have done it. I'm not complaining because the good has outweighed the bad. Don't get me wrong here. But I'm saying the emotional toll, the weight, COVID, just some of the stuff that we've had to go through in starting this church, some of the, yeah, just call it like spiritual warfare, spiritual attacks that we've had to endure. If I'd have known about all of it, I think I would have asked God if we could do something else. But he just said, start a church. I'm going to be with you the whole time. And we said, okay, we'll take the first step. And a lot of times, if we're going to wait until we have it all figured out before we take a first step, man, we're never going to take any steps. We're never going to do it. God is strategically vague because he's trying to protect us. Elisha says, I know God's in on this. And so he obeys immediately. And then he says, can I go say goodbye to my parents? Elijah gives him the thumbs up. Go kiss your mom and your dad. So Elisha left him and went back. I wonder if you'll notice this the first time through. It's pretty amazing. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people. And they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. So what does it say that he did to his oxen? He killed them. What does he say that he did with his farming equipment? He burned it. And for those of you that like rhyming one-liners... He killed his cows and burned his plows. He made a bonfire with his farming equipment and grilled up some steaks for his friends. These cows were his livelihood. They were worth a lot of money. In fact, some of the stuff I was reading about this said that if Elijah's, Elisha's parents and Elisha really did own all 12 of these yoked sets of oxen, well, they were a family that was well off because this was a, this was a pricey deal. They were expensive, and so it makes a lot more sense for Elisha to sell the cows and pocket the money in case it doesn't work out with Elijah. Or maybe just say to his friends, hey, hey, why don't you guys keep my cows for a little bit? I'm going to see how this goes with Elijah, and I might come back. Somebody does. He kills his cows. With the farming equipment, he doesn't put it in the shed. He doesn't put it in the garage. He doesn't give it to his friends and say, hang on to this just in case. He lights a match and he burns his way back. He's no longer tempted to go back. What Elisha is doing is he is symbolically burning everything that prevents him from following God with his whole heart. Elisha knows that the people that God uses the most are those that hold on to the least. And so he says, I'm burning it. I'm leaving it behind me. I know God's in on this, and, and I'm, this is plan A, and I'm burning plan B. There's no going back. To kill the cows and burn the plows means to commit wholeheartedly. It means to eliminate anything that prevents you from following God. I, I was thinking about this, and I, I just want to take a minute to celebrate some folks in this room who have done this, who have proverbially killed some cows and burned some plows recently in our church. This is not a prescription for every person. I'm not telling you to do this, but I'm telling you that these people felt a nudge from the Lord to strike a match and burn these plows. And I'm proud of them for doing that. I know some people in this room recently who have, who have deleted all their social media. They didn't deactivate. You ever been there? They deleted 
They said, the time that it takes up for me, the tension that I feel for me, what it causes me to think, what it causes me to buy, the way that it causes me discontentment because I'm coveting, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. It's a net loss for the team. And, and what they were saying is that having social media for them was incompatible with the peaceful life that God wants to give them. And so for them to wholeheartedly follow God meant to click delete. Has anybody else thought about doing that? I know somebody, I know somebody in here who, uh, again, this is not a prescription for everyone. This is a specific decision that somebody made, and I'm proud of them. I know somebody who said, alcohol, I'm putting it behind me. It used to be a thing that I can have, but now it feels like it kind of has me. I think about it a lot. I, 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 it just has gotten to the point where it just isn't helping my relationship with God at all. And this person just killed the plows, killed the cows, burned the plows and said, that's behind me. I'm not going back. I know a person in here who deleted all of the gambling apps on their phone. They downloaded all of them when we all got free money like 14 months ago. And then it became more than just fun, more than just free money. Got to the point where the person couldn't watch a game without making a bet. Wasn't exciting anymore without money on the line. And the person just said, it's just not helping me follow God. It feels like the thing that is stopping me from being wholeheartedly committed. And so they just hit delete on all of them. Hold it down, hit the minus button, delete. I, I, uh, I know a family. I, Sunday mornings, they used to be sacred in the sense that organizations wouldn't compete with church because Sunday mornings was reserved for families to attend church. That went out the window, I don't know how long ago, but feels like everything now is competing for Sunday morning family time, especially sports. And listen, you will not find a pastor who's more pro sports than me. I'm all in. I'm in the club sports. I want all your kids to play varsity. It's exciting. Not anti it at all. But we, we really, this is, a decision, this is a decision that's coming up for my family. So I'm saying it out loud. I know I'm not the only one. I've really got to consider the message I'm sending my kids. If I say, hey, for the next four months, we're not going to go to church together on Sunday mornings. We're going to go to the field or the courts. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-missing church every once in a while. I miss church every once in a while. It's okay. It's okay. But I've really got to consider the message I'm sending my kids. If, if I'm making a, a big family decision to say, we're not going to church together, we're going to do this instead. I've got to consider that. I know a family that said, we're not doing Sunday sports. We're not doing it. I don't care what local club coach says. We need to do it. We're just not doing it. This family specifically, there were, there were five Sundays a year. In order to play for this one team, there were five Sunday mornings a year that they kind of had to give up. And the family made a decision together, okay, we're going to do these five, but on those weekends, on those specific weekends, Saturday night, all of us were all going to church together. Every other weekend of the year that they're trying to get us to do stuff, 
We're going to church as a family. That, that's, that's the family plan. And let me just tell you, these kids went on to play college sports. They won awards and everything. It's just, it's crazy the lies that are being fed to us. If you don't do this, you're not going to. This family specifically, again, I'm not trying to prescribe anything for anybody here. What I'm saying is you really ought to consider, is there anything that's preventing you from wholeheartedly following Jesus? And do you need to kill that cow and burn that plow? Strike the match. Do life differently. Do it differently. A life with God is different, man. I'm sure, don't you think? Elisha ran back. He said, give me the knife. I'm going to kill my cows. And I'm sure their friends were like, are you sure, man? This seems like a, a lot. And he killed his cows and he said, give me, a, give me a match. Give me a lighter. And they handed it to him. They're like, are you sure, dude? Like, this seems like a lot. This seems kind of fast. Good, well-meaning friends that loved him. And Elisha said, I'm all in, man. God's in this and I'm in this and I'm going in. And if you make any decisions that seem radical to the world, you can bet that you're going to have some friends go, really? Really? That seems like kind of extreme, kind of radical. It's what it takes. Not all cows are bad. Not all plows are bad. If they prevent you from following God, we really ought to kill them. We really ought to burn them. Let me close with this and then we'll sing uh, just for a minute. But this is a very, it's a very theological question that we're, we're having to ask. Like, if you have anything that's preventing you from following God, do you need to burn it? Do you need to kill it? It's very theological. If you don't believe that God is good, if you don't believe that he has good things planned for you, if you don't believe that he wants to give you the full life, if you don't believe that he has your best interests in mind, if you don't believe that God is for you, then why would you do this? If you think he's holding out on you, it's just going to be a grind for the rest of your life. But if that changes and you go, you know what? I do believe that God's way is the best way, that he's not holding out on me. He's not trying to give me a, a boring version of life, that he really does have a better life for me. Well, if you believe that, well, then this, nothing else makes any sense. Nothing else makes sense if you really believe that. So it's, a, it's really a, a profound theological question and it really reveals what we think about God. So a couple questions to close. What has God called you into? Even if you don't know all the details, will you take the next step? Is there anything stopping you from taking the next step? And if God's asking you to kill a cow or burn a plow, Will you do it? And maybe I'll just add this one. When will you do it? Man, isn't it easy to say, yeah, 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 I'm going to do that. I'm going to get to that. Let me give you 60 seconds, 90 seconds to consider this. What's the next step? What's the, what's the response to this? And when are you going to take it? Share it with the Lord. Tell him when you're going to do it. And in 90 seconds, we'll sing together. to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.